This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talese, and Alexis McLeod. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Perry Zern, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at American University. His book, Curiosity and Power, The Politics of Inquiry, is just out from the University of Minnesota Press. Is curiosity political? Does it have a philosophical lineage? In Curiosity and Power, The Politics of Inquiry, Perry Zern shows consequentially, yes. He further asks, who can be curious? How? When? To what effect? What happens when we are curious together? Engaged with multiple social movements, ranging from the mid-20th century to our current time, and thinkers of curiosity from the ancient world until now. Zern theorizes the normative and political force of curiosity while providing insights into how it has and can be wielded for transformative collective resistance. Perry Zern, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. I'm delighted to be here. Um, Well, will you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background uh, as a theorist and how you came to work on a book about curiosity? Sure. Yeah, I'm a political philosopher by training, and I focus on um, studying forces and histories of change. And for me, that means I ask how change happens in our minds and in our bodies and between people and institutions. And I focus in particular on political resistance and curiosity and transgender life as separate loci of transformation. Um, But sometimes these topics bleed into one another. And as you'll see in the book, Curiosity and Power, all three are certainly present, despite the fact that the title uh, simply names curiosity. Um, So that's a little bit about me and a little bit about what what I do. But how I got to this particular book, I feel like you can tell this story from a really personal angle, or you can tell it uh, more professionally. And so I'll start with the personal. I grew up in a context that was particularly conservative in all kinds of ways, religious and political and and otherwise. And although there were certainly avenues for a free-ranging curiosity um, in my education, I was homeschooled, um, but in other senses, my curiosity was incredibly constrained and there were appropriate ways to practice it and appropriate topics to practice it on. And then there were clearly inappropriate ones. So there was a lot of there was a lot of policing of knowledge in my, in my youth. 
Um, and I, nevertheless, I was entirely enthralled by knowledge itself or by the, the, the process of inquiry. I've just always loved school. And I find myself, I count myself lucky that I'm now a professor and I get to just be in school all the time. Um, but um, so I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wanted to continue on and go to college. And at the time, because of my sex assigned at birth, uh, my parents uh, said no and just get ready to get married. Um, but I, I ended up finding my way a little bit late to college. And when I got there, I thought, oh, you know, I've made it. I, I've found some freedom and, and now I'm going to be able to kind of practice my curiosity on anything and in any direction. Um, but what was, what was fascinating is there, again, I found these constraints on my curiosity and ways in which um, there are certain topics that are covered in higher education and certain ones that aren't, certain lineages that are tracked really, really carefully and others that are entirely, you know, jumped over. And so there's something about that, this, this feeling feeling that where I thought curiosity would be most free, it still wasn't. Um, and, and that the reasons for that seem to be social and political and in some cases, religious commitments. I just thought, wow, there's something, there's something here to think curiosity more, more deeply. Um, and so from there, I think, Honestly, I think I developed what, what some people call a, a breadcrumb curiosity, which is I just I just started kind of noticing where the word shows up um, in in my life, in my work, in philosophy in general, as I went through grad school. And the more I noticed and noticed and thought and thought, suddenly I thought, you know, first of all, there should be more books about curiosity. There should be a deeper interrogation of specifically curiosity and sort of the political structures that inform it. Um, and so I think that's, that's, that really long tale is how I got to writing Curiosity and Power. That's the, that's the personal story. Hmm. And then the more professional one, I would say, was in one of my very first graduate classes. So I, I, I finished undergrad and I went to a very small religious college um, and didn't get anywhere, didn't get in anywhere for graduate school, my first year of applying. So I ended up paying for um, some graduate classes on my sort of night school on my own at, at Villanova for a year. And one of the courses I took was on Heidegger's, Martin Heidegger's Being in Time. And somewhere in the middle of Heidegger's Being in Time, there's a section on curiosity. And he's, it's really a, it's a dramatic takedown of curiosity. And I was somehow assigned to present on this particular section and I read it and I read it and I read it and then I read the Augustine, St. Augustine passages that Heidegger's working with and um, kept thinking about them and noticing, you know, I feel like there's um, something funny going on here. I feel like the, his, both Augustine and Heidegger's characterizations of curiosity were pretty feminized um, so curiosity for them is, is sort of gossipy, uh, it's flighty, it's superficial, it's unreliable, it's generally just not very insightful. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, we should, there should be a kind of a feminist analysis of, of mm. this particular reading of curiosity. And so I tried to start one in my presentation, and I just remember the presentation falling entirely flat. And I feel like I got no echo in the classroom or from the professor. And there was something about that moment that was, for me, I mean, as an outsider, right, I was, I was there among r the real graduate students who were um, actually in the MA or the PhD programs. Um, and I was 
and I had just been denied acceptance at all the graduate schools I had applied to. And I just felt, so I already felt like an outsider. And then I thought I was bringing something outside of the text, but that really we needed to bring this feminist analysis to, to the Heidegger and Augustine passages. And I just, and there just wasn't a, there wasn't an echo or a resonance. And something about that was entirely humiliating to me, Hmm. but also, um, but also frustrating. And there's something about that frustration that honestly, I think it was a harrowing moment that, that just, that just, just, you know, I couldn't, then I couldn't let curiosity go and I couldn't let it go that I had something to say about it that needed to be said. Uh, So I also do track the book back to that particular moment. Um, Mm. And, and as you, as you can see in the, in the book itself, there's, there's not only a really deep feminist analysis, but a race analysis and a disability analysis and a trans analysis. And I'm just really trying to bring issues of social marginalization to the topic of, of curiosity, at least as it's treated in philosophy. Yeah, no, it's so interesting hearing that story about the seminar because I hate it for you <laughs> personally, right? Like the, <clears throat> excuse me, the combination of humiliation and then frustration, but um, yeah, the book that it gives rise to in a way, I, I hope like, people can focus on the arc of that, like the meaning making out of the experience of frustration, humility, right? Like that, that is a long process. It's, it, this is a work of over a decade, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And the like way that you stayed true to the, that early impulse um, Mm. is is amazing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which I think takes us to this, this major theme of the book that curiosity is political Mm. and um and there that you work that theme throughout the book it returns and so would you talk about that um because one of the things that you constantly point to is the way that curiosity works on both sides or multiple sides of struggles of political struggles um and so how did that become a guiding or or not so much how but like how is that a guiding um, theme of the book. Yeah. So when I think about, when I, when I state that curiosity is political, what I'm trying to communicate is that who is curious when and how they are curious is informed by social values and political structures and in fact, political struggles. So I, there's never an instance in which curiosity exists outside of social values or outside of political structures and it just happens or appears and is practiced on its own. Curiosity is always for me embedded in that social political milieu and therefore is political. So that's that's part of what I'm trying to communicate when I state that curiosity is political. But then once it's political, of course, that doesn't mean that there's only one way in which it's wielded because there's certainly all kinds of political structures, all kinds of social values, um, and and therefore curiosity takes different forms or formations in each case. And so, one of the ways in which I open the book is I talk uh, I, I talk about Sarah Bartman and Zora Neale Hurston, and these these stories emphasize that kind of contrast in the formation of curiosity. So, Sarah Bartman was a woman from uh, South Africa who. Uh, as you may recall, around the turn of the century, the, the 17 to 1800s, she um, performed in freak shows and other entertainment uh, areas in um, England and France. And she was treated as specifically the the instance of a difference. Her 
blackness and specifically her black womanhood um, were were the object of um, certainly ogling and 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 in in an entertainment setting and also in a scientific setting. So she was also studied by scientists during her life and then after her death, again, as an instance of a difference. And this kind of curiosity is expressly, in that case, colonial, um, anti-Black, and and certainly misogynist, and 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 that's a formation of curiosity that was that was um, specific in that in that historical and geographical moment, but certainly also has resonances to a lots of other, lots of other times and and cultures and and settings. But by contrast, I also tell the story of Zora Neale Hurston. And specifically of Alice Walker, the um, famous writer, finding the burial place of Zora Neale Hurston. So Zora Neale Hurston is an anthropologist in the early 1900s, and um, she was remembered for doing a tremendous amount of work recording uh, black songs, black folk songs and, and folklore from the U.S. South. And that was her work, and and it's just an incredible legacy. But she was relatively forgotten um, af- by the time of her death, uh, enough that her writing and her work really had to be recovered by the likes of of Alice Walker in um, in the 1970s. And Alice Walker talks about you know she tells a story of growing up as a black writer and 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 the ways in which patriarchy informed her pantheon of black writers, the, the ones she knew, the ones she thought about were men. And, and she lived her, you know, she went through her high school, she went through college, she went through publishing her first short story and never, she says, I never kn- knew about Zora Neale Hurston. And what is it to not have that legacy? What is it to not have access to your own history, right? To histories of black writers as a black writer. And she ended up um, kind of getting word that, uh, of Zora Neale Hurston and decided to track down where it was that, that Hurston was buried. And she went to Eatonville, Florida, and, and writes this wonderful essay called Looking for Zora about the experience. But that there's another curiosity. There's an insistent, I need to know this person. I need to know their work, and I need to find them. And that's, that's again... If we're talking about how curiosity works and how it's formed, there's love there, there's intimacy there, there's belonging there, there's a resistance to a white supremacist narrative um, of writers, but also a patriarchal emphasis on on black male writers at the time, and so what that offers a different, a, a contrasting lens through which we see curiosity doing something different, and so I can I open with this kind of contrast and say what. What does this invite us to think about curiosity as political in both cases, for uh, in the case of Sarah Bartman and in the case of Alice Walker's mm-hmm. discovery of Zora Neale Hurston? Um, so that's that's at least you know the beginning of where where I start with the question of why curiosity and how curiosity is political. Yeah, and it's it's multiple ways of operating. I guess we'll right. say we'll get more into operations, not quite the right word. I think, no, that's but... good. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so one of the ways you contextualize the book is to give a political history of curiosity and its vicissitudes through time. And you have, you know, sort of, th- sort of three big eras, like ancient, medieval, and modern stories of curiosity. Um, and you, curiosity has very different um, sort of, 
I don't know, ideological or um, dominant understandings in these different eras, but you link in each case curiosity to exclusion. Um, and so I'd love for you to talk about that relationship between curiosity and exclusion and how it works out differently throughout that history. Yeah. So this chapter, the political history of, of curiosity, comes from um, perhaps again a different frustration, which is which is the the preconception that philosophy doesn't have a whole lot to say about curiosity, or that curiosity hasn't really been tackled by philosophers in the past. And there is this conception, especially among more contemporary uh, analytic writers. So part of the work of this chapter is to say, well, actually, uh, there's been a lot of incredibly rich philosophical theoretical engagement on the topic of curiosity, and we have a lot more work to do to unpack it and to pay attention to it. So, um, and this this also comes from a certain, um, I guess, frustration with this with the ways in which. It, I, uh, folks responded when I first said I wanted to write a dissertation on curiosity. It was the, the, the response was, well, that's not really a philosophical topic. There isn't really stuff for you to do there. And I thought, yes, there is. (laughs) So this is, this, that's part of where this, this particular chapter is coming from. And also it's the breadcrumb curiosity showing up as you, as you can tell when you read it, it's, uh, uh, I've been listening to a whole lot of texts and reading, reading a lot and just kind of tracking the little breadcrumbs of where, where curiosity shows up in the history of philosophy. But besides all of that, I do think it's really important to mark that curiosity in the ancient and medieval periods is disparaged significantly and is treated as as something terrible, something you don't want to practice, um, either in, whether you're sort of in a secular setting or in a religious setting. It's something that takes hold of you and turns all your best qualities against you and um, breaks your relationships and uh, distances you from the truth. And it's just, you know, it's just not, not a desirable quality. Um, and in doing so, interestingly, in the ancient and medieval periods, it is aligned with um, specifically women, slaves, the poor, people with disabilities, colonized peoples, it's dismissed as something those folks do. Those mm-hmm. folks practice curiosity. Whereas if you're serious, you're going to study, you're going to be marked by studiositas instead of curiositas um, and, 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 and kind of a rational wonder, reason and wonder. Now, what happens, I mean, one, one story that really captures this, I think, is the work of Apollius, who wrote a book called The Metamorphosis. And this is the, um, the, f- the first fully extant uh, Latin novel to, to survive uh, for us today. And in the story, Apollius is telling um, the narrative of Lucius, who is a apparently a very well-made man and of high class and high wealth and good reputation, but he has a character flaw. He's tremendously curious. And he's specifically curious about magic at the time. And he can't, he just cannot get it out of his, out of his mind. And he ends up meeting some quote witches or, or magic women who engage in magic. And all he wants is to have them uh, transform him into a bird. He thinks that being a bird, specifically an eagle, would just be wonderful for a night. And um, but unfortunately, the the spell goes poorly, and uh, he ends up becoming 
a donkey or an ass. And, and, and in this, and this is what curiosity does to you. First of all, it turns you into an animal, which is interesting. Mm. And it takes away your high class status and your high reputation and your access to wealth. And he ends up um, hanging out with robbers and thieves and people um, who are condemned or, or treated as, as criminals um, and lower class women. I mean, the story, it's just, it's just the, de- it's the demise of a man. Apparently that is what curiosity does. Hmm. So that's really the, the ancient and medieval conception. But then in modern philosophy, we can think of specifically um, Rousseau and his treatment of Emile. He, he talks about, Jean-Jacques Rousseau talks about what it means to really educate a proper citizen. And he centralizes curiosity. And he says, in fact, curiosity is the bedrock of a productive citizen. But that citizen is now classed, is um, a young man is able-bodied, is part of a, not the colonized, but the colonizers class. And so curiosity suddenly takes this, just has this entire flip for what it stands for. And, and, and it's being reclaimed in that moment in the early modern period. And there's all kinds of explanations for why this is happening. You know, there's a, there's a certain demise of the, the Catholic church and the rise of secular science, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what's important for me to emphasize in that story is that as curiosity gets lifted up, gets reclaimed, gets kind of washed off, dusted off, the folks who were disparaged for their curiosity remain disparaged. Remain, there's no change in their status. So curiosity gets saved, but, but folks on the social margins don't. Uh, and it's specifically, it's, it's that that's a that's a that's a uh, that's just a moment where you start to see curiosity and politics having this longer story together. Sometimes they're coming together for one practice and then separating for a different practice, and um, and that's just intriguing and also inviting for us to say, okay, we're we're one of these. There were, were people who've really inherited this modern sense of curiosity mm-hmm. as wonderful, great, let's do it. It's central to what it means to be a human and a citizen and a global citizen. So if you type in global citizenship and curiosity, there's lots of literature on it. But what what might be buried in that sense of curiosity that still supports um, a mistreatment, a disparagement, a, a sidelighting of um, women's concerns, people of color's concerns, uh, poor people's concerns, people with disabilities concerned, and their practices of curiosity. How are they going unrecognized while a cleaned up curiosity, a normalized curiosity gets lifted up? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, to go back to the story you told about the seminar, right, there was a way in which you were being disciplined into a practice of curiosity. Mm. in that moment right and so yeah yeah consonant with the story you're telling Mm -hmm. um yeah and so then you take us um you kind of give us that broad overview history and then you take us to what you call um episodes from political theory um and these episodes are really centered around the work of Nietzsche, Foucault, and Derrida um and as you point out I think really um, wonderfully, these are three curious people in the history of like they are um, sort of seen as being curious figures in the history of philosophy. Um, but they're also three people who appreciate 
curiosity with these varied forces and some of the language that I saw you employing to talk about how they understood curiosity was like freezing, immobilizing, confining, dissecting, also subverting, upending, and abolishing. Um, and so I'm interested in how these they these three thinkers um, form the core of that of that episodic approach to curiosity in political theory. Yeah. I so yeah. Why Nietzsche, Foucault, and Derrida? I wanted to use folks in a in a book that's really establishing a political philosophy of curiosity. I wanted to use folks who are recognized as political thinkers first of all. Mm, yeah. But that and that narrows it down a little, but it doesn't narrow it down to Nietzsche, Foucault, and Derrida. Um, so within that, I wanted to write about, and I find myself just doing this in general, I want to write about people who speak to me, people whose work I enjoy reading. Um, and Nietzsche, Foucault, and Derrida, all three of them played an incredibly important role in my undergraduate education. I didn't have a class on philosophy of race. I didn't have a class on feminist philosophy as an undergrad. Um, I had a lot of history classes. And these per these particular figures allowed me to think about what resisting the confines of social structures, of texts and discourses and traditions, and kind of getting underneath, out from underneath, um, ways of thinking that have been really heavily circumscribed and passed on. And at the time when I was a college student, that, that, that was life-saving for me. Mm. Um, so I think I do want to recognize that I have an affection or an affective relation to these three folks that yeah. no doubt played a role in why they ended up as the political figures here in the, in the, in the episodic section. But more germanely, perhaps, all three of them, as I show, have this um, this conception of curiosity that's two-sided. They understand, and it's not just a simple, like, good and bad curiosity both exist, but rather that curiosity is always, always appears on the scene of struggle, and that there are forces, different forces of curiosity at work. Uh, anywhere that you look. And so uh, I talk about Nietzsche and his contrast between a, a curiosity that against life, as he says, and then a curiosity for life. Or in Foucault, there's a curiosity that works uh, in institutions, and then there's another one that works in kind of political resistance movements. And then in Derrida, again, he talks about a kind of curiosity that serves sovereign ends and goals. Um, versus a kind of curiosity that's deconstructive and un, un, slips out again from under those, those kind of sovereign moves in institutions, in texts, in literatures and traditions. So I wanted to use these folks to really, really put the point on um, thinking, we have to think about curiosity in the midst of struggle and of different curiosity formations, as I say, at war with one another. Um, and I might just pull out, I'll just hang out for a moment on Foucault. I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm really connected to all three of these folks, but Foucault in particular, he's one of these guys who is, first of all, he's gay. And he's one of the first, for me, I, he might've been the first uh, queer author I ever read about the mm -hmm. time I was coming out, which is, you know, which is always kind of a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, there's a philosopher who's a little bit like me. Um, but he, his queerness, I think, 
was one reason I, I thought about him, but also he he's just this very interdisciplinary thinker and writer, and he's constantly trying to push himself to expand what he's curious about and how he's curious about it. But then he's also really complica- complex about how he thinks about curiosity. So if you think about the history of sexuality, for example, he he dives into why is it that we're surrounded by questions that prompt us to name our sexual identities and to na- name and claim them and to align ourselves with our sexual identities? Why, why does curiosity drive us there? The curiosity of, oh, well, what's your sexual orientation or who do you like to sleep with? You know, those kind of questions versus a kind of curiosity. He contrasts it with um, what, what would it be like to have a, a kind of curiosity that, that pushes us to explore our um, kind of sexual encounters and sexual affects in ways that just change who it is that we are and how it is that we relate to our bodies and to other people. What if curiosity did that <laughs> um, as opposed to locking us into some kind of box or, 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 or narrative or label? So he's thinking, he's thinking really deeply about what's happening, what's happening through the force of curiosity in history of sexuality. And then it's, I don't know if it's a, there's, a, there's something tragic, uh, but also poetic, I think, that he ends up dying of complications mm-hmm. from AIDS because uh, AIDS is one of these things that it, it mark an entire a failure of medical and scientific curiosity about yeah. what's happening to queer people, yeah. what's happening to an entire generation of queer folks. And so the... So for me, he's this champion of curiosity. He's this complexifier of curiosity. And then he dies at the hands of a lack of curiosity, specifically a a refusal to take into account. And I think of all the issues of today in public health and and inequities in public health. Where are the questions being asked of which communities and who's paying far, far too high of a price for that? Um, so I don't know. There's something about him as a as a as a person that mobilizes a lot of what I'm trying to think about in in curiosity and power. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, and I I just want to sit with that for a moment because it's so, I'm just really been struck by how people who really fought that in curiosity in the beginning, at the beginning, in the middle, and all throughout the AIDS pandemic um, are the people who gave us the most guidance in this pandemic, right? Who sort of knew Mm. how to guide us politically Mm -hmm. in this pandemic. So I just appreciate that. Also that connection and you, you, yeah, just, um, it's striking. Yeah. It Um, is striking in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to speak also to the, then one of the limitations, you know, with Nietzsche, um, Foucault and Derrida is their tendency to see curiosity as like an individual, endeavor or to individualize the work of curiosity. And um, I think then to connect to ACT UP, right? And these other mm, social yeah. movements. I, I know that's not a social movement that you focus on, but you 
do look to the civil rights movement in the United States, to the prison information group in France, and to movements for safe and accessible bathrooms in the United States, um, to see how curiosity operates in those movements and to make, I think, this um, really important point about the possibilities for collective curiosity mm-hmm. um, and, you know, the sociality of curiosity. Uh, and so, so will you talk about that move that sort of, I mean, I'm sort of interested if you read all three of those folks and you were like, this is really individual. And I think there's, you know, like if, or if it was more like you were reading about the Jeep and you were like, huh, there's something collective happening here. You know, I would love to know just a little bit of that. And then uh, about the importance of, of curiosity as collective practice, especially in movements for liberation. Right. Yeah. I think, Honestly, I think it, it, the the observation, I mean, who knows where observations start when yeah, you're a I researcher. Know, like, <laughs> I can't for something that probably happened years ago that was important at the time. And, yeah. 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 I mean, I do think there are there are ways in which the Jeep is, tr- the Jeep, which is a, is a prison resistance um, network organization in France in the early 1970s. I think I was der- certainly working on that particular archive at the time and noticing the ways in which they mobilized questions and specifically aimed to change who was asking the questions and to have it be a currently or formerly incarcerated people asking the questions about prisons and about prison conditions and about the future of punishment, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I was certainly experiencing a, an archive of collective curiosity in that sense at the time. But I also remember um, having worked through the Nietzsche, Foucault, and Derrida, having, I, I wanted to go back and I wanted to say, what, what are the figures? Or, you know, like when you, have, when you have someone or something that can be the, the crystallization of a perspective that's really good for writing. <laughs> uh, mm. And so I was, gonna, I was going back for those. And I noticed that all of them kind of use themselves as a sample curious person, right? I'm I'm really curious in the way that I want people to be curious. Nietzsche's especially good at this, celebrating his own curiosity. Um, but all the but there are other examples that that each of them use, the Parisiest in the in Foucault or um, Alice and Alice in Wonderland for Derrida, but they're all singular people mm-hmm. or singular forces. And and I thought, wow, yeah, well, well are they you know, we need to think about something a lot broader than that, especially given that I'm moving at that moment in the book from a, a his, sort of a history of philosophy toward a more um, kind of social oriented theory. And philosophy in itself has so often emphasized the individual and the individual capacity to think. And I don't want to fall into an emphasis on the individual capacity for curiosity. I, wa- I want us to grow beyond both of these things. Um, and this is not unique to philosophy. I think this is also much broader. There's there's a, a lot of literature on the transgressive power of curiosity from way, way, way back when. But over and over again, it's conceptualized as individual, as either the individual genius who can just poke a hole in a, in a system of knowledge, or um, the individual rebel who's just leading leading a social change movement and everyone's following that one person and they're, they're the, the, the curious charger ahead. So what, what that, that misses so much, first of all, that just misses so much. And I think even of myself, I think of the vast 
number of folks alive and dead who have informed my curiosity, what it's, what I am capable of asking and how I'm capable of pursuing those questions and what I find valuable about particular questions. Um, and so I just think, you know, as I think about curiosity as a social and political practice, I want to think about it in a collective or a communal sense. And so, yeah, I do spend a lot of time thinking about specifically political resistance movements and, I don't know, we might pause on the, the the PISAR movement, which is the people in search of safe and accessible restrooms. And this was an initiative um, at the University of Santa Barbara in the early 2000s. And what's really beautiful about it is it's a, it's a group of um, students and staff, but also community members. So in and outside of the university um, and across kind of disability issues, trans issues, and also... Um, kind of menstruation and, and lactation issues and trying to think about bathroom access. Who gets to use a bathroom when they need it? Who can, what, when they get in there, is it in fact accessible? Um, and what would it take to have a much richer sense of access on that specific university campus? And one of, one of the ways they started their endeavor was was through PISAR patrols, where a group of, you know, two or three folks and a lot of different groups of two or three folks, typically they tried to um, have a range of genders represented in each, in each group. They went around the university and just logged, where are the bathrooms? What do they look like? What kind of access is there for trans folks, for um, folks with disabilities and for folks with families or who have menstruation needs? So um, this is, there's clearly an active curiosity at the center of this particular movement, not just to say what's going on, but also what do we need and, and what kind of world could we imagine? What kind of higher ed world of, of bathrooms could we imagine that, was, uh, that were accessible for folks using the university, but also um, community members outside showing up? Yeah, if we don't assume we already know who we is here right like if we take this kind of curiosity in a group how can we think about the situation we find ourselves in yeah 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 i love that part of the book that description of their work Mm -hmm. and in the frame of curiosity and how powerful that is yeah um okay so can we talk so you have a chapter on um you know critical disability studies and the role of curiosity there and we don't have to focus on Eli Clare's practices of curiosity, but um, he really does get, he gets, you know, there's, you write extensively about him. And um, so I'd love to focus there if you're game, especially you use these wonderful words to describe his curiosity as both suturing mm-hmm. and prying. Mm-hmm. Um, so what drew you to his work? Um, and then, why, I guess, why is he so central to your kind of critical disability framework for curiosity? Yeah. So Eli Clare is um, an author who writes at the intersection of disability studies, trans studies, and um, environmental ethics. I think that's where where his work hits but so i he i came across him in a number of different ways and i just i just kept hearing well you have to read eli claire well you have to read eli claire Mm -hmm. and and given my particular interest in all three of those areas and um and i did and you know people tell me to read things all the time and i try it out and i have to see how it fits and in this case claire is 
to me, he's what I like to call a word bender, partly because I'm entirely taken by the the Airbender series um, <laughs> on television. But um, a word bender, which to me means he can do things with words, and therefore, to me as a reader, that are just really powerful and really unique. And so it's how he writes that gripped me most. And I had the so. I, I'm a fanboy. That's just that's just a fact um, of Eli Clare. And I had I had the wonderful opportunity to host him at a, the Trans Thinking Conference a few years ago, and um, we were walking. I forget. We were walking to something um, from one building to another, and you know we were just chatting. And I said, you know, I think I'm writing a book about curiosity. And and he said, uh, he said something like, well, curiosity is really terrible or really violent. And I said, I know. Um, I know. And also I'm just gripped by the fact, did you know that you use questions on almost every page of your writing? And he said, what? I said, yeah, you have, you have, you know, I've counted every question that you've written, which is true. And, and it's, you have at least one per page across the books that you've published. And I said, I'm just trying to think about what that, what, what that says about how curiosity could be practiced otherwise. Um, Cause he has a really, a really strong critique of what he calls purient curiosity, which is a violent curiosity that objectifies and spectacularizes other, other folks and treats them again as an instance of their difference rather than um, as full humans. And it's a powerful critique and it's a necessary critique, but um, he's practicing a different form of curiosity. Anyway, so after we had this conversation, I saw him um, more recently. I think it was at the last Trans Thinking Conference. And he said, Perry, I just can't stop thinking about it. And now every time I write a question, I pause and I say, is this the question I, I really want to write? So, um, but, so that's just more of a personal narrative about Eli Clare and his capacity to also to listen he said he loves hearing what other folks are doing with his work and to kind of learn about it through them um but he's so he uses questions so how does he use questions he's, he uses questions in all kinds of ways what what matters to me is to think about um so often people with disabilities are treated as curios or as curiosities as always being stared at and asked kind of in, intrusive questions about but um I'm interested in moving beyond that and saying, how is it that the disability community practices curiosity? How is it that someone who has a disability or a disease or an injury um, practices curiosity? And what would it mean to bring that to the fore, right? We can keep critiquing the the objectification and the curiotization, as, as Amy Marvin calls it. We can keep critiquing that, but we should also do this other work of recovering the incredibly rich practices and understandings of curiosity within marginalized communities. And so when I think about how he uses questions, I'll just flag one particular use I find really powerful. And that's that as he writes, he talks to, he he knows that there are folks um, that he's lost in some sense um, to a history that has erased disabled people and the, and the, and the richness of their, of their lives, right. That just, just are erased and, and, and a history is, is not to be had in some sense, but there are names, right. So he'll, he'll raise a name and the little bit that he knows about, about, um, someone with a disability in the past. And then he'll just start asking questions of them as if he's bringing them into the room. 
bringing them into the book, bringing in them into the space of the reader and saying, what was it like? And what did you think? And how did it feel? And what is, what is, what are your connections and your relations and your story? And it's not that there's any way he could ever get an answer to those questions, but simply posing them, um, lends a richness of personhood to people who have been, um, dehumanized and depersonalized. So that's, one of the one of the reasons why Eli Clare uh, has what he has in the book. Yeah, and as I just have to say, as somebody who's really interested in the limits of archives, that that practice is so powerful for sort of not allowing what has been lost to be the last word, right? That it's been lost, mm-hmm. right? Like that someone, all we have is someone's name to mm-hmm. be the last word and to to give a sort of life and relationality through the loss um, yeah. is an amazing practice of curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, I also I just, now I'm going to tell an Eli Clare story because yeah, <laughs> I got to take a um, pedagogy workshop with him at my institution. Um, and I was really, it's interesting to me that um, the conversation you had around curiosity with him, because to me, the space of that pedagogy workshop was, um, one of such a like uh, well-supported curiosity. I felt like it was there was like an affect of curiosity in the room that was really generative and like allowed people to both ask things and to like push themselves to think through things mm. um, that felt like that he made possible, you know? Yes. No, I see that so much in his work and in his person. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that just goes to show that that sometimes the word, the, the practice of curiosity is sometimes where the word isn't, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you can, mm-hmm. and you can find and track it there. Totally. Totally. That's great. Um, in your chapter on trans curiosity, you make this observation that's, um, that's really stuck with me. You say, um, insofar as trans people are curious, trans objecthood is untenable. Um, and it, it's just a really effective, like dense, sentence and I know that you right after that observe um the limitations of that sort of move um to like sort of trap us in in terms of human subjecthood um but I I think that that observation insofar as trans people are curious trans objecthood is untenable I think it's really hard one um and works at a lot of levels so could we talk about it could we unpack it a little bit yeah absolutely um this chapter is obviously personal. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, as a trans person, I think that I was surprised um, to experience, to viscerally experience the ways in which I became a curiosity to other people as I became visibly genderqueer or trans. And that, I mean, that changed it changed so much about where and how I traveled and how I moved in different spaces and how I would feel in advance of entering a particular room. Um, and I remember the very first time I was in a room of predominantly trans people. I, I think it, you know, it was years and years and years after coming out. And, uh, but I walked into that room and I could, there was something, there was something that just happened in my body and, and, and just the release and the relief, um, of what it would mean not to be the one or the weird person in the corner or the, you know, the person that everyone kind of prickles 
at in some sense um and that doesn't help you know that doesn't happen in every single space but the the potential is always there and it's always in my mind um so this experience of being a curiosity and you know i also need to name you know that i you know as a you know transmasculine person um white um able-bodied there's a lot of ways in which i'm not noticed also and i know that this kind of curiosization again to use amy, amy marvin's word is um is felt in a lot of different ways for for um, trans folks kind of a, across our community. But I thought, what would it mean to ask what <laughs> what trans people have thought about curiosity or how we've, you know, where are my people in this narrative? In this book I'm writing, where are my people? What are they what are they what are they thinking about curiosity? How have they lived through curiosity? How have they practiced curiosity, irrespective of being social curiosities or media mm-hmm. curiosities or legal curiosities or academic curiosities? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this this chapter is it comes out of that and, and which is you know similar to the disability chapter to say, here's a community that's been curiosized. Um, how do they practice curiosity and how might that really change what we think about the richness of what curiosity can be from it and within the margins. So um, that's part of what's going on. And most of, most of the work is um, focused on, on autobiographies. So at the time I was um, actually um, recovering from surgery and I was thinking, I was thinking of, of other trans stories. I was needing to surround myself with other trans Mm -hmm. stories. And uh, I just read, read pile after pile of, of um, trans autobiographies. And again, not to, not to say that trans people just have their life stories and that's all that we have, I think, but to say that, that there's really rich, theorization happening in our life stories and what does it mean to bring that to a political philosophy of curiosity yeah that um the theme of gender as journey that i think you pull out of a lot of different um stories that was a very powerful framing for me to think Mm. about a practice of curiosity that um that's temporalized in that way right that and that has like vicissitudes right like a journey always has problems and obstacles and resolutions and then things that don't get resolved. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a very, um, I don't know, that was a framing that gave me a lot. Um, And uh, yeah, and I want to grant, obviously, that um, trans folks aren't the only folks who have a gender journey. (laughs) Um, I I actually started thinking about that too. Yeah, I think everyone does. And I think, um, and I actually think that the contrast between cis and trans existence is, it lacks a certain illumination when we think change only happens on one side. I think Mm -hmm. uh, cis people are constantly negotiating also the pressures of gender and the pressures of a gender binary and specific expectations about their gender. Um, But I do think there's something, obviously, I think there's also something unique happening in trans life where we grapple with a level of change and resistance that um, is specific to us, I think. Um, So uh, do you you think of the last part of the book as a conclusion? It's not called a conclusion, so I wasn't (laughs) sure if if it was. I mean... I wrote a non-conclusion to my book, so I'm totally good with this, but I'm just sort of interested if unsettling curiosity, which is the last section, is a conclusion. Yeah. I mean, both the first essay and the last essay in the book are unnumbered. And um, for me, that means 
that there's something about an intro and a conclusion that one can say, well, that's just setting things up or closing things off, but there's not something substantial about the book happening in those places. But for Mm. me, these essays um, that bookend the book, there's everything, in fact, that's happening in the book, I think, is being done there in the edges and at the margins and um, specifically through conversations around uh, black feminism, uh, Chicana feminism, uh, Caribbean philosophy and indigenous philosophy. There's something, there's something for me that's instructive to place that, you know, part of the book is to say there is a philosophy of curiosity. And I also want to say, and that philosophy is happening in places that philosophy often doesn't recognize. So that's part, that's part of why those particular uh, essays are unnamed <laughs> as far yeah. as as far as intro or conclusion yeah um and then the un, part of what's unsettling in this last essay mm. um you you look at these concepts of opacity ambiguity and intimacy um and i think you frame them as being concepts that are companionate to curiosity but they're also unsettling with and for curiosity yeah, I'm, yes, I'm thinking there about, I'm really um, inspired by Christina Leone's work on opacity and curiosity, and she calls opacity an attendant term for curiosity. And I started thinking about what it means to be an attendant, um, and I thought about companionship, and I thought, what what companions might, you know, maybe maybe part of the problem is that we think of curiosity as alone. Maybe part of that's why we get to an individualistic um, sense of curiosity. And maybe curiosity needs companions in order to do their best in the world, um, the much like we need companions. And what would those companions be? And so I propose, following Leo and I propose opacity and lean on, on the work of Edouard Glissant, as she does, um, but then also ambiguity, where I draw on Gloria Anzaldúa, and then intimacy, where I draw on a range of indigenous um, theorists to say a curiosity that reckon that can reckon with opacity, that can say you do not need to be transparent. The world doesn't need to be transparent. It's not all there for me to know simply because I'm an explorer or a discoverer, but in fact I can live alongside a certain um, refusal to be seen, what, what would a curiosity be like that? Or a curiosity that can also live with ambiguity, that can say, I'm not trying to settle things. I'm not trying to overly define things. I'm not trying to put them all in each of their boxes or their catalogs, right? But I'm, but I'm willing to stay with and stay interested in and listening to um, something that is ambiguous, that, that, that cannot in fact be settled. Or again, intimacy. One of the vast critiques of, of kind of a Western colonial gaze is that it comes in and and simply um, needs to know and to acquire. And indigenous theorists, they say, curiosity cannot get started unless we've reckoned with the intimate connection that we have between one another and between ourselves and other living beings and between ourselves and other living beings and the earth and the larger cosmos. Intimacy and interconnection comes first and then the process of coming to know. So this is, this is an injunction for me of where does curiosity go next? I hope wherever curiosity goes next is not alone, but companion it with these, with three, these three um, folks, opacity, ambiguity, and intimacy. Yeah, it's your book sets up 
many, many research projects. And which, <laughs> I you hope know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, and I know you're, you're exploring some of those possibilities. Um, so what are you working on now? Yeah. So I'm working on always a number of things. Um, mm-hmm. I do think I am a, a fairly curious fellow, but um, one of the things I'm really excited about is a book on the poetics of, of transgender activism. I'm trying to think about not um, transgender policy, transgender inclusive policies, but what are the ways of, uh, as Fred Moten says, making things and making one another that we that we practice in a poetic relation with one another as we're doing the activism of working for inclusive change. What do, what happens behind the scenes? What is the way of being with one another? And um, that work involves um, archival work and interviews with um, all over a hundred um, trans folks about their activism and their work, specifically in higher ed. Um, and that, that that's a it's a project that is so rich and also that I feel so responsible for doing it right and to hopefully practice this kind of curiosity I've been talking about, a kind of curiosity that's always in relation, that's always alongside of and with, and that's always listening. Well, it sounds like going to provide quite an archive as well. Yes. Yeah, we've been talking about what to do with that. Yeah, I think it, it's located in the, around the five colleges specifically. And so we'd like to, to have some kind of shared trends archive at the five colleges um, in the future. Oh, amazing. amazing. Yeah, that's great. Well, I look forward to talking about that project when it's <laughs> you know, out in the world. I would love to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you, Sarah. <laughs>